come out, throw leather, somebody go to sleep. I believe it's going to be Golovkin. Do you really? I do. So you think Canelo will knock out Triple G? Saul Canelo Alvarez. <laughs> mm. I'm sorry. I do not see that. I believe Canelo will go to sleep fairly quickly. I'm going to say in round five or six, he's going to be put to sleep by Triple G force because Golovkin is a little bigger, a little stronger, and a whole lot tougher and meaner, I believe, than Canelo. We are back for another episode, and um, uh, but so let's let's start with the headliner, Srisakit Sorungvisai or Wangek Wang Wangs Wisaksil, whatever you want to call him, Sorungvisai. Um, here, listen, he beat Roman Gonzalez, he knocked him out, beat him up. And there's just a really unique phenomenon that you get, and you only get it below 122 pounds, and it's, and it's gut-wrenching. And in the higher weight classes, we see fighters fight well into their 40s at an elite level. You know, it's rare, but you see it, and it's not uncommon, and it's not uncommon to see a guy in their late 30s still elite. But for these young, these smaller guys, 29 years old, that's the tipping point. That's where guys start to decline rapidly. Um, and rarely do we see anybody after that point continue to stay themselves. And it's possible that a guy as talented as Roman Gonzalez, and there's no denying how talented he is, it's possible that he could have maintained his success if he had changed his style a little bit because his style... Uh, it, it, it included a lot of athleticism that was a, a little underappreciated uh, when examining his style. But um, Gonzalez wasn't Gonzalez, and that's not to take anything away from Rungvisai. Rungvisai did exactly what he needed to do to beat this guy. And I think what we saw, one of the things that we saw at least, was um, you know when you're as dominant as Gonzalez was, you don't frequently get the chance to practice defense, and you don't frequently get the chance to practice how to overcome adversity how to survive adversity and we saw it he gets dropped and what does he do when he gets up he rushes toward Surungvisai and wants to brawl and he gets hit with the same shot that put him down except this time it ended the fight and that is the downfall of the great Roman Gonzalez um, do you want to eulogize him some more or would you like to compliment uh, Rungvisai um Kind of a little bit of both, but you're talking about the age and how um, sometimes at the lighter weights they can get, get old overnight. I think it's important to, to point out, I think they're both the same age going into this fight, but the difference being that Gonzalez campaigned a lot of his career at a much lower weight, whereas um, Rungvisai has been campaigning more or less around the same weight um, for some time now. And so he's like got a little bit more immunity to that uh going over uh, going old overnight sensation that you're talking about and but I, and also he's also boxed fewer rounds and fewer fights yeah there's um there's or not fewer fights too. but fewer rounds but yeah go on the the thing that interested me is that i saw um echoes of kovalev in the fight um, because he, he kind of, he felt sorry for himself that he'd been, um, wronged in his mind in their first fight. And so when there was, um, a little bump of heads early on in the fight, Gonzalez made a big kind of protest of it, um, put his hands out and, and wanted to show that he thought that that was unacceptable. And he was looking to the ref for kind of like, um, 
you know, sympathy or help. And and we talked about it with the Kovalev fight um, with Ward with this rematch is that kind of you've got to take a winner's mindset and think that you're responsible for what's happening. And if you go into it looking to make the other person look like they're fouling you or you want to like um, complain about how dirty they're being rather than taking uh, responsibility for it yourself, you're kind of already onto a losing pattern at that point because you're looking for um, ways to excuse yourself rather than ways that you can take control of the fight. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, his attention was elsewhere. His attention was on trying to prove in this fight that he there was an injustice in the previous fight. And, and that clearly explains why he stops and... The, what was the referee doing uh, just allowing this to happen? But he actually stopped the action in the first round to say, hey, that's a headbutt. Say, Do something mm-hmm. about this. And the referee was like, uh, don't do that, okay? Yeah. And I, I think when you're resorting to kind of like tattletale tactics, and even if it's legitimate, like even if you've been fouled legitimately, the ref's going to spot it or they're not. And you can do little things to make them notice it. But if you're relying on the ref to bail you out, then you've potentially already lost. Um, it, it's kind of down to you to take control of, of how you're going to approach the fight with regards to fouls. And I saw someone who was more interested in feeling sorry for themselves and pushing this um, I got wronged um, agenda rather than someone who really wanted to show how good they are. Uh, it, you know, how you deal with the low blow, there, well, there are two ways. And the way that the commentators, specifically Amolinaji, or Roy Jones would tell you is um, when they low blow you and the referee does nothing, you low blow them back, <laughs> you know, eye for an eye. But the other way and and how we've seen it done is uh, my favorite way this was handled was when Eric Morales fought Manny Pacquiao for the first time. Pacquiao low blowed him. And the only thing Morales did was he kind of made a face at him and told him, bring it up. And he did it himself. And, and Pacquiao nodded in acknowledgement and the fight went on. I mean, it's as simple as that. You don't have to go to the referee, but that kind of it's it's a you know a loser's mentality, and I, and I hate to say that about Gonzalez because the guy has done nothing but win over his career, and the only blemish you could possibly even throw at him is uh, the Juan Francisco Ashada fight that happened. I don't know, like in 2012, 2013, or something. But it was that long ago before you had to go to somebody who really gave him a challenge, unless you think Quadras did pretty well. But I thought Gonzalez did win that fight. So mm. um, Rung Visay, I think, in this fight, um, so the first fight, I-, I watched it with the sound off. I mean, I just literally couldn't hear it from where I was at. And um, I watched it from far away. You know, usually I'm, most people watch the TV up fairly close. I was probably like 20 feet away from the TV. It was a big TV, but still, I was really far from the TV and watching it... Um, and I thought Rungvisai did enough to win that fight. And I didn't mm. get to look at punch stats. I didn't get to do that stuff. But it looked to me like Rungvisai won the fight. And I didn't hear the commentary, so I didn't know what anybody else was thinking. Um, every time I would see Letterman's card, I, you know, I just ignore it like I usually do. Um, and we'll talk about that a little later when we talk about uh, the Quadras Ashada fight. But anyway, uh, so I thought Rungvisai had rightfully won that fight. And I could have seen it go either way, though. Now, in this fight... Rungvisai vindicated himself because not only did he basically fight the same way, he showed that whether or not he won that fight fairly or unfairly, he defeated Gonzalez, as you said, mentally and mm. went into this fight. Gonzalez didn't have a shot and Rungvisai, all he had to do was be himself. And now we're stuck with this dilemma of, wait a second, we thought Naoya uh, Inoue was the number one 
super flyweight in the world, but we actually have this guy who is shockingly good with a win over, you know, one of the best fighters of this generation. Mm. So where do we place Rungvisai now? I, I think that that's going to be a really difficult question to answer. And the reason for that is that we saw a really uh, mentally injured Gonzalez going into this fight. And he was mentally injured because of the loss he took and how unfair it was in his mind. Um, what's difficult to tell is just how much credit we should be giving Rungvisai in making that situation happen. Sometimes people break down their own engine on their own just because it's that time, because it's late in their career, they've had too many rounds, um, they're competing at a weight class that's beyond what their body can handle. There's a, a hundred reasons you can come up with. So until we see Rungvisai in against somebody else, um, it's really difficult to set that benchmark of just how good he is. Um, I agree the potentials there are very high. You, you, he could be someone that is really influential in the division um, for a while to come, but he could be someone that comes unstuck reasonably quickly and it'll turn out that it was just Gonzalez expiring under his own steam. So it's a watch this space one, in my opinion. And I, I also think that you have to use the same set of guidelines or principles that you use to judge Gonzalez that you gonna that you will with Rungvisai. And the fact of the matter is simply that you're right. Rungvisai is the same age as Gonzalez. And while he's fought far, I guess the word to use here um, would be he, he's fought less competitive competition over his career than Gonzalez. Still, age is a factor. And um, he's still got a lot of fights, a lot of mileage on his body. I mean, not as much as Gonzalez, but a lot. And at 30 years old, with monsters lurking, like uh, the legitimate monster Inouye, and then um, Estrada, it's 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 tough to see. And I know people were, if you looked in the comments, people were like, oh, this is the new Manny Pacquiao. He's going to blitz through these guys. He'll beat Estrada and Inouye. I don't know. I think just as quickly, this could be a, a flash in the pan where a guy catches the guy at the right time and then in his very next fight loses that title because his mm. time is up now. And and I'll give it to um, Rungvisai that he did not like, you know, he, he beat Gonzalez and then trained harder than ever. And that's what you want to see in a guy. But I just, even if you were to do that, I can't see him going forward and, and basically reigning over the division for more than one or two fights before time catches up with them. Yeah, and, and we'll have to kind of wait and see how that one plays out. But, I mean, we've seen it with Nicholas Walters where everyone wanted to get excited about Nicholas Walters after his big win over Donaire. And it turned uh, out that was just good time, good place. But Donaire, the guy who stopped his previous fight um, against uh, Simpiwi Vetyeka to complain about a headbutt. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. So let's so move on. Um, and these all three fights are connected, so we're going to keep weaving these guys back in. But we're going to go on to the Inoue fight. And um, I don't think there's much to say about this fight. Now, the one thing I will say is is simply this, and it's really not even that related. But, you know, I, I was at the arena live, and um, we got there. I can't even remember who was fighting. We saw a, a female fight. We saw a 154-pound fight, um, Ruslan Madeev. Uh, and then was the headliner in that one. And then we saw Brian Valoria get a knockout win. And then we had three main cards that you all saw on HBO. And I'll say this, 
I can't tell which was louder, but one of the loudest sounds uh, in that arena was the sound of Inoue landing body shots. I mean, this is a guy who's 115 pounds, and his sounds are reverberating throughout the, the venue just as as loudly as 154 pound shots that were being thrown and landed earlier in the in the in the card. I mean, the guy's quick. You can see that on TV, but there that power is real. And um, you know, there wasn't much to get from this fight. Yeah, I think you've got um it's just setting up intrigue and this was more of a marketing fight than a boxing like checking out their kit boxing wise so like we don't know anything we didn't already about um how good he is all that was happening was this was a kind of coming out fight for um an audience to try and get some intrigue into setting up some interesting matches for him um i don't think that it's a growing fight i don't think they've learned anything there but i think what they have done is um planted a flag on the kind of promotional scene that that we're here as an interesting opponent for anyone. And one one thing about that is there were a ton of Japanese fans there. Now, it wasn't half the, the arena, maybe a quarter. There's still a lot of people that came out, Japanese fans that came out to support Inoue. And I think mm. with this fight um, and those Japanese fans, a title fight between Estrada and Inoue or Rungvisai and Inoue in America, they could probably get close to selling out the stub up center i mean it's going to be tough for any super flyweight fight um to sell it out i mean estrada does have a big following as well i mean this was the the perfect capturing of different fan bases in that in, on this card you know there was a there's a big nicaraguan uh fan base there the japanese fan base was there the mexican fans were there and then um unfortunately rungvisai did not bring out his thai people i, I saw one thai flag and it was a guy walking through the, the parking lot after the fight. Uh, only one. So I, I think the demand is is there for Inoue. And one more fight, possibly with him as an undercard. You put him with somebody who's, you know, maybe a more established uh, name fighter where he can uh, basically win over more fans. And it's hard to watch him and not be won over. He fights the style that you want to see. I mean, the, the dude is... He's he's a maniac in there. Now, not a maniac like Ushik. We'll talk to that. That's like a legitimate maniac. But um, in, in a way, is easily... I can see him crossing over and becoming not... You know, he's not going to be Canelo. But he's going to be able to headline his own HBO cards. And especially with the way HBO puts guys over. I mean, second to none. Let's go on to the Estrada fight. Um, I thought, first of all, it was a great fight. And a real coming out party for... Juan Francisco Estrada because I think for years now unless you've closely followed flyweight he's been overlooked and Gonzalez has been the guy over the past several years to get all the fanfare um, and anytime you talked about any other fighter uh, it, around that weight class it would be in a way and, and it would only be as like that well this is the real guy in this division um, but I think Estrada really showed not only is he fan friendly um, he's just a great fighter. I mean, Quadras is the kind of guy that it, he's like the, the opposite of I'm not Rune Wrong, where Rune Wrong is going to foul you and make sure that he wins because if, if you get ahead, he'll foul you and he's going to get away with it. Quadras is the other way in that he's just going to make things really hard for you every single round. He's going to counter you. He, he's going he's gonna to eat three of your shots, but he'll make sure he lands one. And Estrada was able to make the adjustments over time to mm -hmm. basically take Quadras out of his comfort zone, drop him, and ultimately win the fight. 
you know, when they corrected it, but I, well, and, and not on the HBO card, uh, but Estrada is just a great fighter, and I can't wait to see him fight Rung Visai. Mm. Yeah, it, it was a bit of a slow start. I had him fairly comfortably winning, so when HBO's card had him losing by a round um, when all was said and done, I was like, huh, well, hopefully the judges will have it um, with Estrada winning quite comfortably. And uh, then they announced the score all at the time. They were all the same as HBO's commentary card. And I was like, huh, like, this is odd. And then they obviously revealed that they'd, they'd had a mishap and that it was the reverse. And the other. And then I, I, I thought, oh, well, at least the right guy's got the nod. But still, that's that's a bit close for comfort. I, I, I thought he, he won it a bit more cleanly than that. But um, I usually say as long as the right person gets the nod, not to worry too much about whether a scorecard was wide, you know, you know close, etc. But, yeah, really interesting way that that was handled. Do you think that they'll be interested to get him in with Gonzalez after how Gonzalez looked? Oh, my God. Who? Which one? Estrada. No. Gonzalez is done. Well, I agree, but Estrada's got two losses on his resume, and he's avenged one of them. So you don't think that they'll want to, given the fan base that kind of follows him, um, Gonzalez, that is, they all want to potentially avenge one of Estrada's losses and get him a fight that they think might be the right time for it. No, they're Gonzalez is done, absolutely done. You can't well, sell that fight. I think you can sell it, and I agree that I don't like his chances going into it. And if you want to say that he's done, I can buy that, sure. But I don't think that that means that this fight can't happen. I, I don't. I don't think you can sell that fight. I don't. I, I don't see a way that anybody. And listen, we're dealing with people, If it, when it comes to the, these super flyweights, you're dealing with people that closely follow the sport, or they closely follow these fighters. The casual fan isn't tuning into this one. So there's no need to sell previous storylines, because we all know it. So mm. we all know that Gonzalez just got, got folded by Rung Visay. And we know the first time Gonzalez fought Estrada, he escaped. He won, but he escaped. Estrada was coming on. This might have been a competitive fight two years ago. And Estrada might have had a chance to, to avenge his loss two years ago. But at this point, it's a guarantee. There's no way that Gonzalez would beat him. And I understand the point of trying to avenge the loss. But you, if, if I'm in Estrada, there are no waste fights for me. It's every single fight has to either be for money or for a title. Because he's approaching the time where he's about to you know fall off the cliff, as Max Kellerman likes to say. And um, I don't think there's the, the money's there for a Gonzalez fight. I don't think his fans are coming out to see him the way they did for this fight because the hope isn't there. This was, this was Gonzalez's chance to have a fight sold on hope because even if you, did, you were a big fan of Gonzalez going into this fight, you knew that wasn't Gonzalez. In the first one of a side fight, that wasn't the Gonzalez you knew. And the guy that fought on Saturday, you definitely know, wasn't the Gonzalez you knew. And so I don't see that fight selling. Mexican fans, they'll show up, but I'm, I don't think this is going to, like, this is not going to be uh, as big of a fight as if you do Rung Visay or Inoue. I mean, a Quadras rematch would do better than a Gonzalez fight. You think, I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily buy that. And I think that there would be mileage in it if they wanted to let Inoue take Rung Visay while they have uh, Estrada avenge his loss against Gonzalez and then go looking for the winner. Well, for the record, Peter Nelson, he's already said that they're targeting Rung Visay and Estrada for late 26, or what year is it, 2017? <laughs> Early 2018. 
Yeah, fair enough. So I, I, it's, and so my, my thinking is that we're gonna see Inouye fight one more time, likely against Quadras, and it'll either be here or in Japan, and they'll do one of those like delayed um, cards where they show it as part of the undercard. You know, they'll have an, they'll, they'll basically have the US TV rights air it before um, Estrada fights Rungvisai and then have the the winners fight at some point down the line in 2017, likely on the Golovkin-Canelo rematch undercard on May 5th. I mean, aside from the assumption of a rematch there, I, I can buy that uh, all, all panning out that way. Oh, you, you want to disagree with me? Okay, we're going to get there. Let's move on. Uh, in Germany... Oleksandr Ushik stopped Marco Huck. And I know they say Huck, but we're going to say Huck. Um, and uh, this, for one, this was the first fight where I saw Ushik engaged from the first round. Usually Ushik kind of plays around. He will do, he doesn't do much to open the fight up. And basically he comes on late, or at least in the middle rounds. He, he didn't do that. He started engaged in round one. And um, I have a few points I'd like to make. Um... I'm trying to think if I want to do the controversial one first. Um, no, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I have a controversial statement for you, Simon. Okay? Pound for yeah, pound, mm-hmm. I think Ushik is better than Vasily Lomachenko. I and mean, I don't think it's, the right I don't think it's close. To say that too. And I don't think it's close. Now, But let me make the case for you who's listening at home. You know, oh my God, there's nobody better than Lomachenko. Maybe Crawford and... and and Ward, because they actually have real wins on their resume, but nobody's better. Now, listen. So, one, first of all, one of the things that you can see with Ushik, the greatest strength that he has is he makes his opponents think. Now, think about that for a second. All fighters think, right? But it's something else when you, as the person watching, can see this guy's like really struggling to think here of what to do. Now, Marco Huck was a long reigning and dominant cruiserweight champion. Mm. Like this is a guy who knows how to win fights. He's got plan A, B, C, D, E. You can go down the, and he's got every trick in the book. This guy knows how to foul. He knows how to, you know, you know, uh, get around the referee. He knows how to counter all the basic combinations. The guy's got uh, like one of the better hooks that we've seen in recent memory. By the fifth round, Huck couldn't do anything. Like nothing other than these basically like struggle shots to like counter, leading with his head and, and fouling on the way in and, and on the way out. And you could just see him at moments standing there like with this like look on his face like, what do I do? And, and, you could, and, and, and Ushik would take advantage of that, but like, well, I'm just going to hit you then. You're not going to do anything. Like you're not even in, in a defensive position. You're like sitting here thinking of what to do next. Well, I'll hit you. And I, I thought it was funny, but this was the story of the fight. When um, Ushik was basically like wailing on Huck and slipped and fell to the canvas, Huck tried to hit him while he was down and almost got DQ'd because that's how frustrated he was. He couldn't do anything and he knew he couldn't do anything. And mm. that, that kind of skill, Ushik's better than Lomachenko. Lomachenko does a lot of fancy things, but Ushik is calculated. He's efficient. Like this guy is, is, is a machine in the ring. Now, let's, I, I, would, I would like you to take the position that I'm wrong and defend the honor of Lomachenko for those listeners who uh, love Lomachenko. 
but See, I know that's going to be hard for you to do. The, the problem is the way that I look at kind of pound for pound, the methodology I use, and everyone's got a slightly different way of going around, uh, going about it. The way that I look at it tends to be on accomplishment and who they've beat and what they've achieved. And I think that it's difficult to make an argument for Lomachenko's record being better than Ushik's at this point, um, purely because I think that the caliber of opponent, um, it's not leagues different, but I think that it's it's a, a big step up at least um, in Ushik's case. I think the problem is while they both look interesting, they've both got great skill sets, they're both very quick, which is more important at a higher weight because you don't often see people, um, you know, light heavyweight and above move that quickly um, with that sort of agility, that, you know, with, with a few rare exceptions. So it, it's more standout um, in the case of Ushik, but I think I think the the situation was with Huck that Huck is like he would in in many eras be a gatekeeper, but he had a kind of weak division <laughs> um, that gave him the ability to oh. sit atop it, and he set the bar, and that bar was high enough um, for him to sit above the division for a while. But where we've got some of the new talent coming through, um, they're redefining the standard of quality, and it, it's clear that um, what Huck's bringing isn't going to cut it anymore and that there's a, a, a kind of new skill paradigm set there. So it's going to be exciting to see what happens um, and how things play out within the division. I, I think that it's um, it's been a sleeper division for a number of years and finally getting some of the attention it deserves, which is great. Um, the, the insane comment I saw, someone said that they think that Ushik beats AJ right now. Okay, and, um, if, okay hold on. If... Ushik could keep Joshua from landing a punch. Yeah, he'll beat him for twelve. Like I, I actually responded to that person's comment, and and my main counterpoint was that physics matter, and like you can be a big fan of somebody's skill, speed, agility, timing, whatnot, but when you're talking about weight differences that are so pronounced, and uh, like it, it kind of it's too much of an equalizer. Ushik would need to put on 25 pounds of effective muscle um, to be able to compete at heavyweight because he's weighing in at 200 pounds right now. And he's a tall guy. I'll give him that. Um, and I, I, I was just gave him a very glowing review. But when it comes to heavyweight, uh, against the super heavyweights, the, the, the Joshua's and the Wilder's, um, there's just too much risk when it comes to the power that they have. Um and, you know, I know a ton of people like, well, you know, Wilder's not even in the league as a boxer of Ushik. Yeah, that's 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 true. And, and AJ as well. Neither of them have the skills. Neither of them have the, the, the speed and the technical ability and everything that makes Ushik great. But they that I, for both of those guys, if the right hand lands, it's good night. You know, it's just, this, it, this is the physics of things. I mean, Vasily Lomachenko is great, but put him in there with Earl Spence. Um, you'll see that... Those uh, 17 pounds and it's a 17 pound difference between the two of them. Yeah, that'll matter. Yeah, it's a big percentage of body weight at that point, and it's effective weight. It's not, uh, you know, nonsensical. Like my my bigger problem. So if you wanted to make the case of Ushik beating Wilder, I think that there's more of a way of going around that because it's like, can he realistically keep him off for 12 rounds? Maybe, maybe he can. But um, I think that the bigger issue I take to it is that. We're finally having cruiserweight come to life and be exciting. Stop trying to, you know, deport everyone up to heavyweight to put them in 
you know, cool matches. That, that that doesn't have to happen anymore. We can see interesting matchups within the division without having to invoke um, people that are kind of 50 pounds heavier to make it interesting. That doesn't. That's not a, a dynamic that needs to go on. Well, I want to make a defense of those people, and it's also a defense of Ushik. But um, when that happens, and it happens frequently, you know, a guy can't be great at 140 because people want to know how he does against Thurman. And you can't be good at 154 because then you have to talk about Andre Ward. Or sorry, not Andre Ward, but Golovkin. And mm-hmm. vice versa, you know, James DeGale can't be a good super middleweight because, you know what, he hasn't beaten uh, Adonis Stevenson, who's at light heavyweight. Like that, But that speaks, and it does actually, James DeGale was a bad example because nobody's saying that. But when you are legitimately having that argument, say in the case of Mikey Garcia at lightweight, mm. That speaks to you are really good because when we look at the guys that are in your division, nobody pops up as capable of giving you a challenge. So that is a compliment to Ushik that people, but at the same time, it's a backhanded one because you, you say that like, oh, you know, well, could Ushik could go up to heavyweight. Yeah, but he'd get knocked out by Anthony Joshua. Mm. And, and, and it a- sounds dismissive of the, of the division. Um, Ushik's got some good wins within the division and it's starting to build up steam. Like if you're, if you're selling it as the, you know what, he's so good, he could go up fine. But I often see it presented as a kind of like, he looks so good because his opponents are subpar, but do you know what the division above, that's where the real competition is. And I think that's where the disservice comes in. Yeah. I, I mean, I could see it. it's just it, it really depends on on the person because and it depends on how you're saying it. Like you, that, everything, the context can change everything. So if you're saying Earl Spence is basically toying with welterweights and he's as a bigger guy, he should move up to 154 to really challenge himself because that's where I think the the, the fighters that can challenge him are. And it's not a skill thing. It's literally like you need somebody bigger. And but that's that's not what uh, the guy who you're you're talking about was saying. Um, what he was saying is basically that Ushik is skilled enough that he could go up to heavyweight and beat Anthony Joshua. That is a ridiculous claim. I mean, we we could talk it out. And again, if you're somebody who thinks that, I mean, it it really comes down to can Ushik put on effective weight? Because in a pound-for-pound discussion, and not the pound-for-pound discussion that revolves around accomplishments or anything like that, but in a pound-for-pound, basically, weight strip from the equation, yeah, Ushik's better than Anthony Joshua. In terms of how he moves, like, there's there's definitely parts of his kit. Are you triggered? Like, no, no, he's, he's giving up, though, half a foot. And, like, I think one thing that people forget is that the bigger, the taller, the heavier you are, the less coordinated you're going to look, the less quick you're going to look. So it's like when you've got these um, flyaways that people are like, oh, they're so fast. It's amazing. Look at big lumbering Klitschko. How could he, you know, in a pound-for-pound pound match up against these? And it's like the physics of the human body means that he's going to be slower because he's massive. Like you have to, you couldn't just take someone small, add a load of weight to them and like make them taller and then expect them to be as fast because that's not how, you know, that's not how physics works. So obviously the smaller, um, more compact fighter is going to look tighter. They're going to look more coordinated and they're going to look quicker. That's not um, indicative of skill. It's just how physics works. Um, you have to kind of account for that when you're making those judgments. Yeah, so I I do think, though, at Cruiserweight, bringing it back to Cruiserweight, I don't see anybody beating um, Ushik. I think... Not uh, even Tony Bellew? Uh, 
I'm just wondering if I should hang up on you. <laughs> um, don't ever bring up that name on this podcast again. Okay. I don't, do, you, do you think? Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, obviously, I don't think that there's any real likelihood of that that victory. Yeah, I know. I know you're British and all that stuff. But and, and you know, I, I actually when when I started talking about uh, Ushik or no, and then Huck, and you said that at any point in time Huck would be a journeyman. Are you serious? Like, you don't think that he could have, in his prime, could have beaten David Hay? See, I, I think that's why you said that, because you, as a big David Hay fan, you were insulted that I called Hook one of the best cruiserweights of his time. Well, that's that's true, though. He is one of the best cruiserweights of his time. But I think he did benefit from a, a, a weaker era than is potentially typical. And you don't um, think that Hay benefited from that as well? No, I don't. I, I think that the level of competition was a bit better at that point. Not, not you know, leaps and bounds, but it was a bit better. Because okay. I, I, I mean, uh, Huck struggled with Cunningham, who was of that era. Who doesn't struggle with Cunningham? Well, he knocked him, Tyson Fury down at heavyweight. My point being that there have in the past been a higher level of competition, if, and if that was the standard, Huck wouldn't be um, a champion in the division. Um, with a record like he's got. And I think that the younger new boys that are coming into the division are, are setting that standard higher and they're redefining what level you need to be at in order to be a champion. One thing that is clear, I don't agree with, fully agree with you, but one thing that is clear is that the level of athleticism and, and overall general skill um, has definitely risen across the board at Cruiserweight. That, it, like, you know, guys aren't just coming to Cruiserweight now and winning a title here because they don't want to be at heavyweight and they mm. aren't um and they aren't they or they don't want to be at light uh, heavyweight um and you know you look at guys like Tony Bellew who had a title mm. yeah I, I think cruiserweight's been the division of um people who ran away from light heavy and people who are in hiding from heavy meet in the kind of no man's land that is cruiser um and as a kind of like basket of loose ends and that era seems to be coming to an end. Okay, how about this? Could Ushik beat Joseph Parker? Parker's like not much bigger than him. Just Yeah, I, I I think that, that that's um a more sensible comparison and I I think, you know, for what it's worth Ushik does really well in that matchup. I mean, cuz I'm just saying like Hook barely lost to Povetkin when he moved up to heavyweight. So just something to think about. We will talk now about David Benavides, or actually, no. Um, yeah, David Benavides is uh, light. I can't even remember what division he's fighting in. Like My mind is all blank What's from talking about, talking about all this cruiserweight. Um, no, uh, he, he fought for a world title. Um, Anthony Durrell's, um, Jesus, who, I, I don't even, I can't even remember the lineage of this title. But David Benavides fought Ronald Gavriel. And um, there, there are two popular opinions people seem to have about this fight one david benavides looked terrible two um david benavides uh is still great and still one of the promising young fighters in the sport now for both of those um opinions the thing i'll assert is that nobody and this is the same thing with the gonzalez fight nobody gave gavriel any credit the way that nobody gave um rung visai any credit i mean rung visai was seen heading into the first gonzalez fight as basically a journeyman another thai guy who's going to come in and get beaten with one hand which we've seen many times i mean you know zhu shiming won his world title by then bringing in some thai guy with like 80 wins and one loss 
but you know those guys you know they aren't facing the best competition but ronald gavriel was coming in as the mayweather promotions the home promoter guy to face david benavides one of you know the best young prospects in boxing he's someone i've known about since he was 15 years old and kind of followed as he turned pro and was going into the camps of world champions to give them work so but gavriel was basically like unknown heading into this and when he gave Benavides a tough fight people attributed that to Benavides not being ready not being any good overhyped blah 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 and I think the truth is always in the middle Gavriel was a lot better than people thought I mean this is a guy with one loss on his record he and he's gotten to this point because um you know he he's with Mayweather Promotions he doesn't get easy fights like Mayweather Promotions say what you will about Floyd or anything like that. One thing he does know how to do is match his fighters tough. I mean, Jay Leon mm-hmm. Love coming off of um, a year layoff, I think it was even longer than that. He got Abraham Han to fight, who or Han. And Han is the kind of guy that basically, he always is in tough fights. Nobody gets away from him easily. So mm-hmm. Gavriel, the, the, and the story of this matchup was like, it was two styles. Basically, Benavides landing hard power punches and Gavriel consistently doing work and using activity to score. And the scorecards reflected that. One was 117 to 111 or something like that for Benavides. And what, there was also a 117, I think, card for Gavriel. Like, that's a, a massive shift. Both guys basically won nine rounds. There was an argument for it, for sure. But the truth, again, in the middle, I thought Benavides won by a round or two. Mm. So, um, you know, should you think any less of Benavides after this? I think... The, the proper takeaway after this fight is that he's still green. He's 20 years old, and he fought like, a, like a, a fighter that still needs to mature a little bit. He looked at times to focus on the wrong things. Um, he, was, he continued to go to the, to the head when probably he should have went to the body. He still throws a lot of shoeshine combinations just to keep his hands busy. That I think if he, he kept those down a little bit and basically used them a little more sparingly, he could uh, conserve himself because he did gas out. And that's the other thing, learning to pace himself, how to train for 12 rounds, etc. So it ultimately, it was a good fight. Benavides did get a second win. He did, I, you know, the, the decision, while very wide, was still the right one. And um, as he develops, he, you know, he's still got all the potential to be a really good fighter. The mm. other thing I wanted to talk about on that card is um, the Jay Leon Love fight. So yeah, we did talk about him being out of the ring, but that's not the interesting thing the scoring isn't interesting none of it is interesting other than the fact that how it ended um if you didn't see the fight so basically both guys came in for a hook heads clashed it wasn't even a bad uppercut or sorry uppercut uh bad headbutt but ab han started gushing blood i mean like get your cup of water and just pour it out that's how the blood was coming out and as he turned around walked around the ring like there's just a pool or not a pool but just a trail of blood not drops like you know squirting a water bottle on the floor like that's how 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 free-flowing that blood was mm-hmm. uh, he ultimately like fell on the ground and was flailing and there was just a pool of blood where he was laying uh, it took a while for the doctors to come in and basically get him out of the ring and put him on the gurney he was fine you know he was talking on the way out and everything but it was that was the worst cut i've seen in a fight and it ended in a draw. They'll probably do a rematch. I don't know how long it's going to take for that cut to heal up because that was not only was it long, but it, it was wide open. So that was the fights from this past weekend. Let's get into um, there's a couple of news pieces that I want to touch on. Not too much because we still got a ton to talk about. Um, Before you you quite touch that, you were talking about the um, 
Mayweather promotion matchups. And it reminded me where we had the Javante Davis fight um, a couple of weeks back. Someone I, I got into it with was saying that they think that Mayweather promotions shelters its fighters and doesn't put them in very competitive matches. And I just I was kind of um, astonished someone could come to that conclusion because from my money, Mayweather Promotions does the most ambitious and cruel matchmakings for its fighters out of any real major promotional outfit. Do you agree with that or do you think that there's a little bit of truth to it? They're absolutely brutal when it comes to their matchmaking i know um, so like whoever it, said that was wrong you're just flat out wrong mm. it, it, it just surprised me that someone could be that like um stupid dissolution with it like it, it, well, it's just like you know you can't really point to any evidence of um safe matchmaking you can in fact point to you know dozens of times where someone's been thrown in at the deep end and whooped well let's let's say this like what what's the baseline well, the baseline is basically every what, what everyone does. You get easy matches all the time. Easy matches all the time. So do does uh, Mayweather Promotions match tougher than the other guys? Look at look at uh, you know Shakur Stevenson who he's fighting. Look at um you know the guys. Look at um Carlos Balderas. Look at who he's fighting. Those are two recent Olympians. Um, look at Callum Smith who we'll talk about in a little bit. But look at Callum Smith's matchmaking up to this point. You know, it hasn't been great. We can go down the list. The, the, only pers- the only organization that matches tougher than Mayweather Promotions is um, the people or the, the, basically the certain fighters in Japan who are basically being tossed into world title fights within 10 fights. That's the mm-hmm. only time you get tougher matchmaking. Uh, Mayweather Promotions, and, and to speak to that, look at all how many of their guys have, have losses. They take losses yeah. early because, uh, I mean... Um, if you look at the um, the the Mayweather McGregor card on the undercard, um, the untelevised, it was Michael Borrego versus um, I can't even remember what the other guy's name was, but that was a really tough fight. And the guy who was seen as the the prospect to advance, that wasn't the Mayweather Promotions guy. The Mayweather Promotions guy was the other one, the one who won. Yeah, they seem to have a real sink or swim mentality for my money where they don't want to waste a lot of time and effort if you're not cut out for um, how tough it gets. And so it seems like they want to put you in at the deep end as early as possible to find out just how worth the investment you are. Yeah, I mean, look at Javante Davis. He, he at, at like 21 years old, 20, 21 years old, he was fighting for a world title against um, Jose Pedraza, who at the time was seen as like one of the better super featherweights in the world. Hmm. So, and a guy who certainly knew, knew how to box, he was bigger than him. Like, there was a lot to look at with um, Pedraza and think think that um, Davis was in over his head. Look at Badu Jack. I mean, the dude got knocked out in the first round and came back, and he was matched stiff, and he's, he's come through each time. So, to say that is a little stupid. You're, you, you obviously aren't doing your homework. Like, you aren't looking at... Um, these fights that these guys are getting put into like way early into their into their careers. Um, look at Mickey Bay. He's failed numerous times to really make a dent because he just can't get past the test that they put in front of him. If anything, you could just say maybe these guys aren't that good, but Mayweather has said it numerous times. He's looking for the next him. So that's yeah. why they're getting matched tough. And that's, that's the gift and curse of being with Floyd is that he uses he's using himself as the standard to judge you. And that's why these guys are taking losses so quickly. So enough about that. Let's move on to Mikey Garcia, who is uh, 
supposedly in some sort of negotiation to fight Miguel Cotto. Uh, where should we start with this? Um, Simon, do you think this I, I mean, is, is how safe? substantiated is that? Uh, I, I'd say it's 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 um, it's good enough to believe. Like, and and in terms of like what way like you know just there's there's a lot of information that needs to be put into that yeah i i would say that this is it's it's likely that this is probably happening i mean what else is koto gonna do well retire or do something else Mm, i mean that's 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 actually um it's not bad so you you think they compete what uh uh super welter I, I would think that it would be at some sort of catch weight, like 151 or something like that. Do yeah, think, I mean... Do you think uh, Garcia could show up at like 144 and beat Cotto? It's it's a kind of silly one to even think about because um, they're so far apart in recent activity and recent competitive weight that until we know all of the nuts and bolts on, on what that might look like, I wouldn't feel confident talking too much about what I think might happen because, um, the, the, I mean, Cotto's not exactly big, um, at the weight classes he's competing in, but he's experienced fighting bigger guys for a while now. And he's got, um, uh, a huge amount of experience behind him in boxing in general. Like, I, I don't know, just there, there's, there's, too many question marks um, that would need to be answered before I'd feel super confident um, even starting to to take apart what I think might happen there. Um, j- just because where the size and weight differs, it puts too many uh, unknown variables in the mix. All right. Well, I have no opinion of this fight because there there's there's no rhyme or reason to it. I, I don't know how Mikey Garcia looks above 140 pounds. Do I have think he has the the innate skill? To not only compete with Kodo, but to beat him? Absolutely. But like we when we were talking about Ushik, weight at some point matters. Floyd Mayweather might be able to go up and, and beat up on Canelo or McGregor who weighs outweighs him by like 30 pounds or whatever. Uh, that that isn't what we're talking about here. Uh, Miguel Cotto is a guy who is very good. And he's uh I think he's a lot He's, he's a tricky fight for Mikey because um, he's definitely a lot more aggressive than Adrian Broner. That much we know. And um, while he's not, he's also not as Lati Kaunin who's going to come after him. So it, this is a, just an interesting fight for Garcia. And it'd be nice if they can find a weight where both of them, neither of them is either too drained or too, um, I don't what's the opposite of drained? Too fat? I don't know. Too uh, stretched. Stretched? Fair enough. Uh, let's, let's move on though to... Kubret Pulev saying he's scared of fighting Anthony Joshua. What's your take on this? You're the Joshua expert here. It's um, the, I, I think it's one of those classic ones where someone's hype becomes almost mythical and scary, and it's starting to get that way for AJ, in my opinion. Because Pulev has fought Klitschko, and he knows what goes into that fight, and he's yeah, watched that performance. Like, I mean, he, he hits Klitschko with a good shot in that fight, and um, Klitschko kind of responds by shutting it down. Um, like he doesn't want to risk getting hit with another. And for Pulev, I think it's always one of those ones where you hit someone with what you know to be a good shot. You know it was a really good piece of work you did, and it didn't really get you the result. The, sorry, the results that you're after. Then it can be a bit disheartening, and you just start to think that you know maybe I'm a bit out of my league here. Now, watching what's happened in the AJ Klitschko fight, that's got to be even scarier because you know what goes into a fight with Klitschko, and you just seen someone hold their own and. Um, 
really put some work in and punish him throughout the fight. So I, I, I think it's starting to be one of those cases where they mentally defeat themselves because they, they discount um, their own chances even going into the fight. So now we've got this scenario where Pulev's doing this kind of bargaining with himself where it's like, oh, well, if the fight was a bit later, then I could train enough. Or, you know, it's, it's when start, people start questioning like, oh, if the gloves were different, then this. And if this was different. And it's where they're looking for kind of reasons to excuse themselves underperforming in advance. And when you're in that damage control mode before you've even stepped in the ring, it doesn't usually bode well for your chances. I think it's, I agree with you. And um, the one thing that is interesting is why would you want, like, just don't take the fight then. I think he likes money is is probably the issue. Go fight Wilder. He, um, it's, it's not necessarily easy to, to get that fight made though. And it doesn't necessarily even do as good, good um, numbers and money as you can make with AJ. AJ's a, a very big draw in the division and can provide some very good paydays for people. Um, it's just a shame because obviously, as we know, there's, there's the, um, physical battle of a fight but then there's that psychological battle that often resolves itself in the ring as people um start figuring each other out but sometimes and as it looks like it might have here that psychological battle's already been concluded before the physical battle started and when that happens um it can it can usually be a pretty uh dim outlook for that person well no point in talking about this one anymore because i think the outcome is pretty certain Joshua's going to knock out Kubrick Pulev. Or Pulev's going to get hit once and quit. Um, that could be too. That'd be yeah, nice. when the emotional or psychological battle's already been concluded before you step in, that's where you get weird stuff happening. That's where you get people uh, quitting early. That's where you get people like um, crying or, you know, just all Don't sorts of... Don't make a diss at mis- Roman Gonzalez. You're just kicking him while he's down. <laughs> just... Uh, I don't know. It, it 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 could be it, we could be in for a weird one, is what I'm saying. Okay. Um. I mean, w- more weird than Kubrick Pulev abandoning his normal style and coming out trying to knock out Vladimir Klitschko. Yeah, and, and we don't know. It's just anything's possible at this point. I think a lot of people who had never seen Kubrick Pulev fight before didn't don't realize that the Kubrick Pulev that fought Klitschko that was a guy that if you that people who've seen him before did not recognize. It's like, what is he doing? Why isn't he trying to box? Um, story for another day, though. Uh, well, it, it's kind of a story for another day. But again, he already worked out and decided that he couldn't outbox Klitschko. And so he didn't attempt to. He had lost the mental battle going in and decided that his only strategy was to go for a flash knockout, as so many has tried against Klitschko and so many failed. So, Including it, Joshua. It, including Joshua, yeah. So lots of people get suckered into that trap. But it just speaks to Pulev's... Um, how his mental state going into a fight can affect how he performs on the night. And if he's already lost mentally, then who knows how he's going to play. What if, just a little conspiracy theory, what if Pulev is actually playing a trick on Joshua and he actually does not come out? Next level strategic gaming where the, the whole last five years of his career has been built to create a false sense of confidence. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'll, uh, I'll put that in the tinfoil hat pile for now. Fine. Fine. All right, let's talk about the fights for this week. And you know which one is coming up. It's going to be the last one we talk about. Okay, so first off, Kosai Tanaka will face Rangsan Chayanram. Um, Of the CP Freshmart variety, but not knockout, 
not as if that matters because knockout for one fights in the division below and two, he ain't actually a knockout artist. Uh, so we need to give up that name. Um, but this is an interesting fight for Tanaka. He's still very young. I think Tanaka, um, if you don't know his story, basically this guy like Inoue and Kazuto Ioka before him tried to reach a world title as soon as possible. And um, I, I would actually rank Tanaka's success to, to date below both of them. Um, Ioka managed, even though Ioka, uh, or, this is a weird one. So Ioka is really good. And at the same time, I don't think he's that great. But Ioka did become the lineal minimum weight champion at one point in time. Ioka did capture and unify titles. And, you know, he's moved up all the way up to flyweight at this point, coming from minimum weight, winning titles at, in every division. So three division world champion. Tanaka just isn't that impressive to me. He's good, but like he lacks um, A-level stuff at everything. So he's going to beat this guy and he's going he's gonna to continue winning, but this guy needs to develop more if he wants to get to the heights of even Ioka, but in a way, definitely. It's the, um, we were talking about tough matchmaking and high expectations. We're talking about someone who's like 21, 22 years old um, and has had, what, under 10 fights at the minute? So it's like, and we're expecting them to look like fully fleshed out, developed world champions, able to hang with the best of the best. And it's this lofty expectation. And just because some people hit it, I don't know if necessarily everyone can. Um, but it, it is unfair, but it seems to be um, the way it goes for some of these people. Yeah, he's... Um... It's, it's, it's more like, you know, that some these guys, instead of, well, they do have amateur careers in, in, in America and everywhere else, basically, your amateur su- career is supplemented by numerous fights against guys of lower skill to continue to build. And Tanaka's basically had to learn on the job and progress significantly in each fight. So there's no three fights of guys of the same caliber. It's like, if you beat this guy, you're going to get the next level. And, you know, instead of yeah. getting the national champion, now you're fighting a guy who's capable of winning on the world level in your fourth fight. So it, it, it's again, it's people where they don't want to put in the time and the money in um, the slowly, slowly building them up route um, that we saw Eddie Hearn take with AJ, for example, where he's given him slightly more challenging fights and they, they progress them at um, a snail's pace but slow and steady it seems like some outfits um kind of don't have the time maybe not the finances for that and just say if you're not earning decent money within kind of nine ten fights then see you later yeah um of course aj got brought up but funny how that wasn't the luke campbell route uh yukinori oguni will defend his ibf super bantamweight title against ryosuke iwasa on the undercard of that fight um oguni is the guy who upset jonathan guzman uh, guzman was seen as like jezreel corrales with more power basically and oguni just didn't didn't like made guzman look horrible so um but oguni it was one of those fights where like i don't think you're that good and i wouldn't be shocked if he loses this fight uh moving on uh, Callum Smith, uh, first fight of the World Boxing Super Series in the super middleweight division, will fight Eric Skoglund. Um, if if there is anything to be dis- disappointed by when it comes to Callum Smith, what do you think that would be? Um, probably just that his development in terms of, like, he, he started on a strong trajectory where you think, okay, this person's got... Um, a lot of growing to do and they've got a lot of potential to live up to. Um, we haven't necessarily always seen that happen. 
Yeah, I I think with Callum, I, I, one of the things I think that has been basically like a disappointment for Callum is he just he doesn't look dominant in his fights. He it's not like frail well, is the right word. He can make a meal of it sometimes, smother his work. He can do things um, befitting of a less talented fighter, and it's kind of curious. Well, I, I think for me it's more like. And, and I, I recognize that opinion, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but where I lean is that Callum doesn't do the things he's expected of in the ring. So when he's given a guy that you think a guy like Callum, who's a massive guy at super middleweight, that he should easily stop or knock out, Callum will take him eight rounds. And so, uh, and you know, there's guys that he knocked out in one round that it's like, wow, okay, Rocky Fielding, I guess you're not good. Um, but at the same time, it, Callum's just never like he doesn't exceed expectations, and he hasn't at any point in his career so far. And so it, it just leaves me worried about him. Like it just seems like if he can't blitz out a guy early, then there's really going to be struggle for him at every step of the way. And Eric Skoglin's an unknown entity. He's fought mostly in um, Sweden, so he's he's fought similar opposition to Callum, but like Callum's hey. still the favorite becomes a red herring one that's kind of difficult to judge because often when someone fights um, in the same area, and I think all of his fights have been in Scandinavia um, up until this point, then sometimes when they hit the real world scene and get introduced to the world community, um, they don't stand up to the acid test. They, they can't hang. But sometimes there'll be someone that's been uh, isolated in a little area and they come onto the world scene and they just launch with a bang and you just think wow I didn't expect them to, to look and be as good um, I mean look at Rungvisai look at how we're talking about him um, whereas two fights ago we'd have been saying similar always fought in isolation in their national region against questionable opposition you get the, the you know suspicion that when they come to the world scene that they're not going to look great and that they're going to be a step below what everyone else is bringing. Um, but people can surprise you. So that's why this one's a little bit of a dark horse. I don't think it's going to necessarily turn out that way in this occasion, but you always have to be ready for that surprise. And, and one more thing about Callum. I think also what doesn't help him out is that he was so hyped within his first five fights. He was seen as like just in a blue chip prospect. And, you know, while that's still true, he's still one of the top prospects in boxing and the potential is there. Um, just not meeting that kind of hurt him and having that that kind of expectation, I think definitely hurt him. Let's move on to Billy Joe Saunders versus Willie Monroe Jr. Um, I, I think this is going to be a really boring fight. What makes you say that? Well, Billy Joe Saunders is known for going 12 rounds, is known for not having the prettiest style. And Willie Monroe Jr. has like 21 wins and six knockouts. So I don't know. You tell me. Do, do, do you think I'm onto something? What, what conclusions are you coming to? This is going 12 rounds, and it ain't going to be pretty. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a sensible thing to bet. Um, are, you, are you thinking that there's going to be too much of a competitive aspect of it? or? Uh, that's a good question. Where do, you, where do you fall on that one? Um, I think that it's really difficult to tell. Um, 
Billy Joe Saunders has a lot of talent, but to me, he strikes me as someone that doesn't necessarily have great mental discipline, and you don't know how seriously he's taken a camp at any given point, and whether he's going to show up and half-arse it, or whether he's going to show up and put on a clinic. So it's kind of really difficult to, to pinpoint what guy we're going to get in the ring. I think if he brings his A game, then it's going to be a kind of technical uh, dismantling. But if he comes and he looks sloppy or lazy, then it, it opens it up for uh, William Monroe to, to get his work done and make it close. Well, I to speak to William Monroe, um, I think he's a lot better than a lot of people think. Um, but the thing is, in his neighborhood, he's being compared or the, the comparisons are guys who you consider the real deal. Erzlandi Lara is the real deal when it comes to a select Southpaw. And Monroe and, and Demetrius Andrade co- goes along with that too. So Willie Monroe just kind of stands as like, this is like your, your fourth, you know, you know, Austin Trout is above him of like, he's like your fourth option of like, who's the best slick Southpaw? I think he's last violin. Yeah. And, and does that mean though that he's not good? I think he's a lot better than, than than people think. I think he did give Golovkin something to think about. Now, settle down, Golovkin fan. I know you just you got triggered right there. Now, let me explain that, okay? So, what I mean by that is, like, Golovkin usually just walked through guys, at the, especially, like, look at a guy like Dominic Wade. Golovkin just walked through, threw some punches, and he was gone. Kel Brook, Golovkin just said, go ahead and hit me. You're a welterweight. I'm going to break your face, and he did. But with Willie Monroe, Golovkin had to do a couple of different things that he didn't normally have to do. And Monroe was still able to go four rounds with, and just think about that for a second, okay? Monroe went just as many, if not more rounds than Kelbrook. I can't even remember. And this guy has no power. Like six knockouts, and you're fighting pretty weak opposition coming up. Like that's um, that's a red flag as far as like at least an indicator of what you can do on the world level. Not always though, like the truth. But either way, I think Billy Joe Saunders. Um, is going to have a lot to deal with in this fight because like you said, he does have a tendency to kind of, you just don't know what version of Billy Joe Saunders is going to show up. And he's a very skilled fighter as well, but I think he's going to fall into the trap of trying to outskill Monroe and Monroe can, can hold his own in that, that, that domain. Yeah. I think we'll know very early on though, what the story is. Yeah. So that's the Saunders Monroe fight. Let's move on. We have a fight in the Philippines, Milan Melindo, versus Hecky Butler. This is for a light flyweight title. Butler used to be a minimum weight champion. Melindo uh, won his fight beating Akira Yagashi. Melindo has been beaten by Juan Francisco Ashada on HBO. A lot of people didn't see that fight. Um, and on the undercard, and this is the fight that I wanted to talk about, John Real Casimero is going to fight Jonas Sultan, his first fight at 115. Now, why would we bring up John Real Casimero? Well, Casimero is the guy that I want to see fight Rungvisai. I know Estrada is the better fight, or as far as like, you know, these are two top guys, but that I don't necessarily think that that gives us the most entertainment. John Rio Casimero, however, he, a flyweight champion, that's the most entertaining fight because Casimero, um, the, the guy's all action. He, he forces fights. And if you don't want to fight, like if you want to box him, not going to happen. He's, he's going to walk through your jabs and turn it into a war. He'll do that with, and he won't have to do that with Rungvisai. So these guys will go to war. That's the best fight. Like, you know, that's like Concepcion versus Marquez type of fight. And if you've never seen mm-hmm. that fight, you need to go check it out. Um, so that's the fight that I want to see. This is his first fight at 115. And um, now let's move on to the pay-per-view. Ryan Martin will open things up against Francisco Rojo. That's a lightweight um, fight. 
Martin's undefeated. Rojo's got two losses, et cetera, et cetera. You know what to expect for that from that one. Randy Caballero versus Diego De La Hoya. Now, things are getting interesting. Diego De La Hoya is undefeated at this point. But Diego De La Hoya, in my opinion, he, he does just doesn't have it yet. And he may not ever have it. There's, the power's not there. The defense isn't there. Mm. Two highly important things you need on the world level. See, the problem is, is that his record disagrees with you massively. So, like, you're kind of having to do it on eye test alone. And there's, there's some wisdom to that. Um, I only do eye test, man. But, you know, when, when does it look like he hasn't got enough? When? Like, when has, he struggled has anyone... against opposition that other guys who of similar hype but destroyed? But struggle, like, who, who, are you, who are you pointing at? Are, are you So I'm going off of eye test. So Simon is now asking me, well, why don't you get some statistics to back up what you're saying? <laughs> okay, so let me go down the list, okay? Eric Ruiz. That guy's not good. Yes, De La Hoya won every single round. There's no doubt about that. But it wasn't pretty. That wasn't a good fight. Mm-hmm. Um, which one did I see him fight? I think it's the Luis Orlando Duvall that was on the... I'm trying to think of which one was on the undercard of... Um, so yeah, that one was pretty bad. That was on the, the I think, the Liam Smith undercard, the Canelo-Liam Smith undercard. That was bad. I'm looking for the Khan one. Um, yes, here it is. So Diego De La Hoya versus Rocco Santamaro. That, so we're sitting in the arena watching that fight. And I'm like, this guy's getting hit mm-hmm. a lot. I remember that performance, yeah. And I know Santamaro is 13-0, but this guy had fought like nobody. Like every single like guy he fought, it was just like almost all red on the box rack stuff. So like, don't sit here and tell me that this guy is being brought in to beat Diego De La Hoya. And um, th- then Roberto Puch- Puchetto, that's like the the red flag. Okay, this guy came in losing like five, seven, or f- five of his last seven fights, and Diego De La Hoya went the went the distance with him. And this guy's getting beat by guys that aren't that good. And Diego Diego De La Hoya took a, just took him the distance. Like that kind of stuff is a red flag to me. That doesn't yeah, necessarily flag, sure. mean he's no good, but it's a red flag. Could you be charitable and say that he always does the bare minimum needed to win and that he hasn't looked exceptional because he hasn't needed to yet? Um I I like the question. I appreciate the question. Um but I don't, it's tough because it's like, okay, but he wins all of his fights by like shutouts. Fine. But, but I, I it's, it's, I can't answer that question because I'm going off of the eye test. Like I'm, I'm like, I can't remember his opponents, but I know I've seen him fight numerous times. And every single time I'm left with the same thing of like, wow, I just drank diet Coke. It doesn't taste the same or Coke mm. zero actually. Cause it's trying to taste like Coke, but it's like, huh, yeah, it's not Coke. I know Coke when I taste it. Like I, the carbonation isn't the same it's like got a weird aftertaste that's what it is yeah the bubbles are all wrong so do you think this is the fight that that bubbles popped absolutely so let's let's take a look at a guy like randy caballero okay now now i've got box rec open so we're gonna look at some box rec stuff okay randy caballero um oh you know what i see i i see a, a world level win on his fight or on his ledger when he fought Stuart hall now British fans would be like, well, Stuart Hall was coming off of a loss and then he had a draw and he's actually not that good. Yeah, Stuart Hall is better than anybody Diego De La Hoya has fought at, to this, 
um, point in his career. And Hall was knocked down and beaten. Um, so Caballero is, I, I think, from what I've seen, again, I test, legitimately good. You know, he, he beats the guys that he's supposed to beat, and he beats them the way you expect him to beat or to beat them. Now, he's no murderous puncher. Don't get me wrong on that thing. But he does what he's supposed to do. And so, um, and this is the guy that's missed weight. I think, is it the guy that, I think it's the guy that's missed weight a lot of times and basically is trying to get his career in order, um, but legitimately has talent. And I think um, he's going to be the guy to beat Diego De La Hoya. I, I mean, I, I'll eat my words. I'll eat my words if, if Caballero can't do it. stoppage. What, what do you see? Decision. No stoppage. Decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I do think is Diego De La Hoya has got himself a chin. Unless, and Caballero is not like a murderous puncher. But, um, yeah, I, I think Caballero's going to win a decision here. Now, can we move on? Simon, I mean, I know you love this American domestic scene and just quizzing me on it, but um, <laughs> can we move on? Yeah, you go for it. Okay, now, this, is, this is the fight I want to talk about, all right? Uh, Ryan Martin. No, we, first of all, we already <laughs> talked about that. <laughs> yeah, for eight seconds. No, go on. Maybe the fight, hopefully the fight will go that long, too. Um, Jojo Diaz. This guy was once one of the top 10 prospects in all of boxing. Jorge Lara, on the other hand, has always gone under the radar. Unknown. Took Samson Lukovic to find him and bring him to America and tell Al Heyman, uh, this guy right here is a future star. So Lara goes on his path with Heyman on the PBC brand and just knocks out everybody, except for Jesus Rojas, who... um, they had to go to a decision because of mm-hmm. a headbutt. And it was a close fight, no doubt about it. Ro- Rojas is a tough guy. Um, but uh, Jorge Lara has just basically been knocking everybody out and doing it with a style. And this this is blasphemous, I know, but they were discovered by the same guy. He looks like a Manny Pacquiao. Like just balls to the wall, running after guys, throwing everything but the kitchen seat at them. Like Lara is that kind of guy. And he's in a fight... Jojo Diaz, who's basically went from being considered one of the top prospects in the sport to now being a guy that there's a lot of doubt about. Does he have world-level power? Can he defend himself? He hasn't scored a knockout in a year, and he had a a stoppage win um, almost a year ago, but um, it, it was a stoppage after nine rounds against a guy that he should have easily beat. So there's a lot of doubt about where Jojo Diaz is in his, his um, development. And, and it was clear early on, after like his first, I'd say, 15 fights, that he was on his way. But then he just kind of had a string of fights where he went the distance, and he was getting tagged a lot in all these fights and getting drawn into wars. And so here's the thing. If that's, if that's the case, and that's kind of who uh, Diaz is, a kind of guy who can get dragged into a war, this is the wrong guy to do it with. This is all wrong for him. This is... Uh, uh, you know, just imagine like getting drawn into a war with Manny Pacquiao when he was younger. That you weren't winning that, and so I think this is a, a, a bad matchup for Diaz if he's not who we think he is. And Laura is going to feast on him if Diaz doesn't tighten up that defense and isn't able to move him and box around him and all of that it's, stuff. It's not just the defense; it's the intelligence, as you kind of hinted to. It needs to be strategically sound. Yeah, he's 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 going to need to figure out a way to basically let Laura empty the clip because that's what Laura does. He jumps in there quick and sees if he can find an opening, sees if he can make you crack early. And if you don't crack early, he's at least planting seeds. And a lot of guys get beat early by him because he's relentless. Um, and and, and he's, he, he took almost a year off 
uh, um, of boxing because he got shot. Basically, there was some holdup at an ATM. Someone shot him. Comes back, knocks some guy out. So uh, most likely, he's still the same guy. You know, that happens. Ask Kell Brook. Freak accidents outside of the ring. I mean, at least Laura wasn't vacationing in some like mafia headquarters or something. <laughs> All right, we've arrived. What, what, what's your take with that one? Um, I I think I think Diaz is gonna gonna get a decision. All that hype, but I think I'm gonna go with Diaz with decision. I I think he's gonna be able to put it together. I think I think he's gonna make like this is gonna be the time where he graduates and he's gonna make Laura beat himself by burning out his energy, gassing, and then outpointing him. It but would be a good strategy. I, but, you know, that's also I, very idealistic. And I think Lara could catch him and, and end this fight. So either way, this is a good one to watch. Though. Lots of questions, which is always when they're best. Yeah, and this, I mean, this is what happens when you have a, a 26-year-old, 29-0 fighter fighting a guy who's 24-0 and who's also, or who's only 24 so like this is this is what you want. You have this fight, which is a great featherweight fight, and then the main event, you have Canelo versus Golovkin. Um, where do you want to start with this fight? Um, it's kind of a, a bit of a beast to tackle because there's so many threads and angles you can take with it. Um, let's start with the Golovkin's got the reputation as this unstoppable knockout artist. Um, who always finds his man eventually and gets the job done. Unless they're um, Danny Jacobs. That, unless okay, they're Danny cool. Jacobs. Then cool. how, how do you think that that reputation looks after this weekend? Oh, you're asking me? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I did Heat. This is... Okay. So, if you've listened to our podcast from an early point, this is going to be a broken record. I say this all the time. When you have two guys in the ring who are considered amongst the best in that division, the first thing you do when deciding who's going to win is you toss their power out. You toss the knockout streaks. You toss all the knockouts out the window. Because when you get to this level, the chins are better. The defenses are better. You know, those, those right hands that just found their way home to the chin and put a guy down, they don't land anymore. You saw that. If it wasn't for Jacobs getting lazy in that fight, and I, I mean, I don't know what Jacobs was doing. Like, we all knew. We all saw that coming when he did what he did. We knew he was going down. And even Jacobs got up and was like, damn, that was stupid of me. Now, maybe that helped Jacobs to not get reckless at, over the course of the fight, but you can't really say he didn't fight recklessly because he kind of did. But either way, you saw him Golovkin fought Jacobs. Where did the power go? It wasn't there. Jacobs was hitting his gloves together saying, let's do this. Mm. So Canelo's got a chin that, to date, we, we can say that's a pretty good chin. And Golovkin, good chin as well. Took Jacobs' power. And, and Jacobs is the guy, a lot of knockouts. Where was his power? That power is usually not there when you get these kind of fights. So first of all, what what am I going to say after this fight when I when it goes to the decision? Yeah, that's what happens when you get two guys like this. Um, what are people who don't know that going to say? K- Golovkin's old. He couldn't he couldn't drop Canelo. He's old. And if and that that's if Canelo wins. And if Golovkin wins and he doesn't knock him down, people are going to say, well, you know, Canelo's a tough guy. Um, or if Canelo doesn't drop him, Canelo fans are going to be like, well, you know, 
you know, Canelo was gas and the body work took his power away or so there's going to be some excuse, but the point is it's highly unlikely, not impossible, not, not, not impossible by any stretch of the means because these guys, they do have power, no doubt about that. But when you're just kind of looking on paper, you throw that out. And I don't think predictably there are any knockdowns in this fight. Does that answer your question? Um, kind of. So you, you've given me your take on how you think the fight's going to play out. I never um, said anything about how the fight's going to play out. I'm saving that for the end. Well, you After did the at least start, stops. Tip, yeah, you did at least tip the hand of um, you don't think there's going to be knockdowns and you don't think that uh, knockout power is going to play into this. Absolutely um, not. It's um, the reputation I was asking about on how intact it is. And I guess what you're saying is that uh, if and when it goes to a decision, um, people are going to take of it what they will based on how much they know about the sport. Is that, am I reading you right there? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's fair. Okay. So I guess then the, the next question is early on in the fight, you usually have this period in Golovkin fights where he allows the other person into the fight to kind of make them competitive, put on a show. So he claims, so his fans will claim <laughs> maybe it's intentional. Maybe it isn't, but that's in funny. a fight like this, where there's a far tighter competitive edge from the first bell, how do you think those opening rounds play out? That's not going to happen. Not there. There's no chance Golovkin lets that happen. Let's go back to Mayweather Pacquiao. Floyd takes rounds to figure his opponents out, right? And it's usually four. And after four, we know, you. if you see round five against Floyd Mayweather, I mean, you have no chance. You're not winning another round after that. You, you have to wait to round 12 when Floyd just basically runs around the ring with his gloves up saying, I beat you, to win another <laughs> round. Mm. That, that's, but when he fought Manny Pacquiao, he had Manny Pacquiao figured out from the opening bell. Why was that? Because he was not playing around. Because game recognized game. And he knew... You know what? Manny Pacquiao, I'm better than him, but there's a reason why he's been considered the best of this generation alongside myself, because the guy can fight. And, and he, said he can it himself. look very flashy. He's a very eye-catching fighter. Exactly. And he said it himself. You know, he was, very, he was a, one of the trickiest fighters. He said after the fight, Terrence Crawford against Manny Pacquiao is an interesting fight, and it's a tough one for Crawford because Pacquiao is a tougher opponent than he looks like. And I know at this point, you know, we look at Manny Pacquiao, Jeff Horn's beating him, but still, he's, a, he's, he's awkward, does a lot of things that other fighters don't do, although I think Freddie Roach, no, let's not even go down that route. Let, let's probably leave that one for now. <laughs> um, but but what my question was kind of more getting at, though, is that I agree with you. I don't think we see the normal Golovkin let the guy into the fight, trade in the center, and, and let them get the better of you to, to make it more exciting. I think that this fight's too high stakes, too high talent for that to be um, something that you'd risk. So what my question was more getting at is if they're going to um, engage at face value from the first bell, how do those opening exchanges look? Do you think that Canelo being the counterpuncher, being the Mayweather of the fight, if you like, being someone that's for oh against Mayweather, God. do you think he's that's the one horrible sight. Who that takes a round off to figure stuff out? Good question, though. Good question. Just kind of thinking of Canelo as the Mayweather of the two, that one's just like, whoa. Um, let's see. I do like the question, and it's an interesting one. Um, how, do the, how do the opening rounds play out? 
I, I, I don't see Canelo taking his time. I think Canelo is going to come out and see what he can see, see how much ground he can get early. And I, what I think he's going to do is look for a power shot to land and not necessarily like to knock him out, but to allow Golovkin to feel what he's got and to see how Golovkin relaxed reacts to it. You know, if Golovkin takes a step back, he knows, all right, I, you know, I can, if I counter this guy, I know that he's basically going to retreat each time. If Golovkin just eats it, then Canelo knows, okay, well, I'm going to have to be a little more refined than that because he's obviously not bothered by my punches. So I think Canelo's going to look out or come out and see, and he, he's most likely, I think, going to have something in mind, like a shot that he wants to land. And he's going to look at how he can set it up. It might be a, a body shot. And if, if it was me, I would be looking for a body shot early on. Um, and I think Canelo will also look to consist or find something that's going to consistently land. You know, Floyd does this a lot. He In the McGregor fight, I mean, technically everything was landing. But the one thing specifically he looked for, he didn't look for the jab, is he looked for the right hand to the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and against Pacquiao, he, he, um, it was the body jab and then the right hand, the straight right up top. Uh, and then, you know, Manny Pacquiao in all of his fights, it's always the straight left. Mm. The thing that you think he's going to be looking for his, his, um, most effective way of scoring points then, and then try and rinse, repeat that. Yeah. I think that would be the smart way and the way that they're going to come out to try to, um, to make sure they can take the opening couple of rounds. Um, because I think they know that they're not getting knocked out. I don't think they have a concern for Golovkin's power. I think they have a concern for winning the the decision. Um, I, and, and they would be stupid to think they were going to knock out Golovkin. Um, just you know, that's that's not that's not a feasible game plan. Yeah, it doesn't mean that it's out of the window, but it does mean that if you go into it with that in mind, you've probably not got the best strategy on the go. Um, yeah, just don't even show up if that's the case, Kubert Pulev. Yeah, I've seen Golovkin in his previous fights often gets success with his power. His power often translates into points for him with the judges, but beyond that, it gets um, the respect of his opponent, it tires his opponent, it hurts his opponent. He gets results from the energy he puts into his power. Um, Do you think there's a chance in this fight that he's going to not get the returns that he's used to and that it will open him up to gassing later on if he's having to put so much energy into trying to get his own way with his power and not seeing the kind of return on investment that he's used to? Um, possibly it, it depends on how, uh, Canelo deals with. So I think he, what he's going to do is jab. I think we're going to see the, the Golovkin that fought Lemieux come out, the, the guy who jabbed and, and the guy who was looking to be responsible defensively because, and this is, you know, you don't fault anybody for this. You don't fight recklessly with David Lemieux. He's not, the, he's not the, the most refined boxer, but when he lands, he tends to really hurt people. So I, I, I don't see, uh, and, and Canelo's got power. You know, he's not reckless like David Lemieux, but if he hits you with a big counter, chances are that's going to hurt. So I think Golovkin's going to come out and be responsible and see basically how much he can unfold of his offense as the fight goes on, and it's all going to be predicated on the success of his jab. Now, if Canelo's smart and knows how to either take the jab away or to counter it effectively, we're going to see a Golovkin that we haven't seen before because... Well, actually, I mean, Jacobs did give him a little trouble with the jab by by countering it and and not letting it be effective. Um, but Golovkin still won that fight. And so, what I think Canelo is going to be looking to do is to figure out how what 
how to take the jab away or make it punish Golovkin for using it. And it's going to be tough because Golovkin's got a good jab. And mm. um, I, 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 that that's the storyline that a lot of people are using for Canelo. But I think it goes both ways. And and in the part that of that is Golovkin gassing, Golovkin having to exert himself because I don't know. I, I make this comment on the sub and like people are replying like I I didn't know Golovkin had stamina issues. D- Hello, did you see the Martin Murray fight? In the what Mar- was your point in invoking the Martin Murray fight? In the Martin Murray fight. Golovkin won basically every round. However, that 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 didn't look like the Golovkin that fought uh, Curtis Stevens. Didn't look like the the Golovkin that fought David Lemieux. That looked like a, a Golovkin that w- had to exert himself. I mean, Harold Letterman was like Golovkin's pushing his punches, and ultimately he broke Murray down. I mean, but it's not hard to break Murray down. The guy just stands in his guard all fight and fires off counters every so often, mm. and. The Golovkin fighting late in that fight, that that was a tired guy. That was not a guy who was, you know, fresh and just charging forward and pressuring every second of every part of the fight. And I think Golovkin, um, well, Canelo's a a much heavier puncher than Martin Murray. Martin Murray has never been considered a puncher. And if Canelo's landing the body shot that Murray was able to land, and, and that was one of the things that Murray got a lot of credit for, was for having the balls to go to the body against Golovkin when everybody basically kept their, their gloves close to their face so they didn't get knocked out. Um, if Canelo does that, that changes things significantly, especially given that he's older now. And, um, you know, he's, he's just not been hit to the body much in his career. Yeah, uh, with, with Golovkin, he's got one of the best poker faces in the business. And it means that as an audience, we don't see him appear to be hurt and we don't see him appear to be tired. Um, he's human, so he obviously is getting close to those lines at some point in some fights. It's just he hides it very well, so it's difficult to know just how close he ever gets. And is he been pushed to his limits before or nowhere close? And that's what kind of gives rise to such wide opinions about his potential and his talent, because it's really difficult to know how much trouble he's ever been under. Um do you think that that could play a, a, a part here if if, if the um, the poker face drops for the first time? That that would be fascinating to watch because it would literally be something that we'd never seen from Golovkin before. I mean, we've never seen Golovkin look worried in a fight. We've mm-hmm. never seen him grimace after being hit. What we've seen is him get a little mad. We've seen him smile, but we've never seen that. We've never seen the look of concern or danger. And it'll make for dramatic TV because it, it, it'll it'll have such an impact of like opening up people's eyes like, oh, holy crap, Golovkin's human. He looks, he doesn't look like, I mean, or, or a good example of this is at the end of the Jacobs fight. When they were waiting for the decision, Golovkin looked like, like he was ready to receive bad news. And it was jarring because usually Golovkin's all smiles. Mm. I mean, but also he always knocks all of his opponents out. But that was a moment where it was tense because... For once, Golovkin look, didn't look like the same happy guy that we always see. So that part is really fascinating. And I'd love to see what happens if Canelo comes out and, and does something to really hurt Golovkin or to get his attention. And now we have to see Golovkin switch to a gear that, frankly, he hasn't used ever. Mm. Nobody's ever troubled him in a, in, in a fight. Or at um, least seemed to. Yeah, or at least that he's let on. I mean, Jacob's possibly, uh, you know gave him something to think about. I mean, I, I can't imagine that those hooks that Golovkin was getting hit with in the Jacobs fight had no nothing on him. 
because Jacobs is the kind of guy that can put a guy out with one punch. So hmm. I'm sure that there was moments in there where he felt that, but nothing was, was as telling as the way he looked after the fight. So that's one of the interesting storylines, I think, in this one. Um, do you think, though, that Canelo has what it takes to outbox Golovkin over 12 rounds? Well, it, it kind of ties into the question that I was going to ask you, because you, you mentioned that it's it's somewhat reliant on Canelo being smart. Now, with Canelo, we've got someone that's, what, 27, 28 years old. He's not um, too emotionally mature, not as a fighter. He's, he's got a rich fighting experience, but he, he's still someone that's got, like, kind of young pride for want of a better phrase. And he's someone that has had his um, giving up his belt. He's been ridiculed as a coward, said that he wouldn't take this fight, um, saying that he's like uh, bad for Mexican boxing because he's, he's running away from the tough competition, has been ridiculed as a chicken. Do you think that like all of that combined might get to him and make him want to trade and not fight smart? Do you think that he might make the mistake we've seen so many fighters make where they let their emotion and pride get the better of them and they take a strategy that doesn't favor the situation and end up paying for it? I think if Canelo had never fought Floyd Mayweather, the answer would be, yeah, I'm pretty sure that he's going to go out and try to trade and beat Golovkin at his own game. But I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that losing to Floyd was a learning experience because what Canelo did in that fight was he went out and attempted to beat Floyd at his own game, which is to stand in the center of the ring and box. And what happened was Floyd didn't even have to move that much. He stood in the pocket and he carved Canelo up and try as hard as Canelo did. None of it have had any effect because you're not going to beat the master at his game. And I think at this point in Canelo's career, He's smart enough, or at least has somebody that's got his ear that's smart enough to say, you you, you got to stop fighting other people's fight. You fight your fight. Mm. And your fight is your counterpuncher. You throw beautiful combinations. Um, you, you don't pressure guys. That's not your style. You can, mm. you, can, you can outbox guys in the center of the ring. But what mainly you've done really well on is timing counters, setting traps, and executing on that. Not, you know, trying to be Floyd Mayweather. That's that's what got got you into trouble. So I'm not I, I that think confident. The, the that Chavez fight is probably good evidence of that as well because of the discipline and patience he showed there. A great example because in the Chavez fight, um, I, I think one of the one of the predictable outcomes was Canelo's going to use his dad's style and beat him, and that would have been great TV, great to watch. But he didn't do that. One because it would have been stupid. I mean, Chavez, say what you will about Chavez, and there's a ton you can say about Chavez. But the one thing you can't say is he's not he's you cannot say he's not a good fighter on the inside because he is he does mm -hmm. know how to fight on the inside. I mean you've seen guys get on the inside with Chavez and they they exit the exchange and it's like wow Chavez you know won that exchange he knows what he's doing. Um, and the other thing is that the guy was way bigger. Why why risk getting yourself knocked out uh, on a stupid punch when you can just stick to your game plan and win that way? Yeah, and he's, he's someone whose heart you have to break. If you let him feel like he's having success or he's being let into the fight, it wakes him up. Whereas if you kind of let him feel like he's having no success and getting none of his own way, then it shuts him down. So by keeping that strategy, and, and he kept that, that strategy throughout the whole fight. So I think if you want to talk about how likely it is that Canelo drops his discipline, the evidence we've seen of him of late, in my opinion, points to him keeping his um, frame. Now, you do have an argument, well, not that you have an argument, but 
Possibly he doesn't, but it's highly unlikely that Canelo's going to go out and he's going to do whatever it is that they've game planned for and, mm-hmm. and fight a disciplined fight. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other fights in recent memory where, um, look, the Khan fight, you could say, well, you know, Khan was a welterweight. There's nothing to learn from there. But if you look at the, the poise that Canelo had, and how he never, like, you know, Khan was landing on him, and, and most of the, I think two of the cards had him up. I think HBO had Khan up in the fight. But Canelo was never bothered. They just knew what was, they, they, they had their game plan, and they stuck to it. And whether he was, you know, whether it was the ninth round, the tenth round, he was losing, you know, nine nothing or, or not, he knew that the fight would be over on his terms, and he would finish it the way he wanted to finish it, which was, I'm going to land a big counter and knock him out. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. And, you know, maybe a less experienced fighter realizes, oh, crap, we're, we're down on the cards four to two. We, we got to change something. And they went away from the game plan. And um, the one thing that I hope, you know, there's a, there's a flip side to that. And the flip side is that if the game plan isn't working and, like, not working in the, in the sense that it's not going to work, then going to something else. Because we've seen plenty of fighters um, like Manny Pacquiao who've ultimately lost fights because... They didn't make an adjustment late down the run. Or there was no the, plan B. Yeah, there, and 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 I, and I and I, it's this is kind of contradictory to what I just said about Khan and how he was behind in the cards, but stuck to the plan. That's a little different because it's not as if Canelo wasn't having success or wasn't landing shots, like because he was landing vicious body shots. That that all looked like part of the game plan, which is different from you're getting like he was getting outboxed and there was no shots coming back. There wasn't any hope. It's a very different thing. I just wanted to point that out. Mm. So uh, let me ask you a question. Um, if let's say Golovkin was behind on the cards, like he's just getting counterpunched. What does a plan B for Golovkin look like? Because we know plan A, it's, it's, it's stock, corner somewhere, land body shots, land combinations, etc. The Golovkin mm. style, the Mexican style as he calls it. But should that not work, what, what does Golovkin resort to? I think we've seen him show technical prowess as a boxer as well as he, he I don't put him in the camp of like pure knockout artist because he's not someone that just has one shot in mind he wants to land and then just spends like all the he spends all the time trying to just nail that that shot. We've seen him uh, dismantle people. We've seen him do work and set himself up with body work. Like I think that he's got um, a lot of intelligence in the way that he goes around his knockout artistry, at least. So I don't think that we're likely to see him caught in a trap where he's just looking for something that's not working. I think if he's going to make adjustments, it's going to mainly be um, whether he's head hunting or body hunting. Oh, you think basically he's going to do the same thing, but just but just basically change the focus of where he's going pretty to much his shots okay stalking the person down and going up and going down depending on where he's having more success i i this is one of the things i noticed in the gonzalez fight on saturday um one of the big telltale signs to me that this was not going to go well was in the opening round rung was like you're not backing me up i won't back up and while not like 100% of the time he wasn't backing up, because he did get backed up a couple of times, but for the most part, he would not back up. And Gonzalez didn't know how to fight either on his own back foot or in the center of the ring trading. And I think it's going to be imperative for Canelo to take the center of the ring and basically let Golovkin know, you won't back me up if I don't want you to. And and just to see what Golovkin does, because very few guys have been able to back Golovkin up. I mean, I think Jacobs was doing that at certain points in the fight. 
Um, I haven't rewatched it, so I can't remember. But I don't think he um, just. It's not something that typically happens, and just little things like that can take him out of his comfort zone and and add up over time to um, you know contribute to a victory. Uh, what do you think about that strategy? In what sense, though? Sorry. Of um, do you think that that is going to be a big factor in determining a, a not total success, but a level of success for Canelo? Um, in that, or by not letting Golovkin, Golovkin back him up whenever he wants. See, I, I think that he's going to need to be backing up at points to get his counters off. And I think that if he wants to strongman it and show that he can take the center of the ring whenever he wants, that's when he's going to get the most trouble. You So you think that if the moments when Canelo stands in the center and essentially... That's when he's in the most danger for my money, yeah. I mean, we've seen Canelo land and be effective in reverse, so I don't see why they wouldn't want to employ that. Um, I, I think it's more to Golovkin's detriment than it is to Canelo. Not, not to fight in the center, but it, it, it will do something to Golovkin not, or to, to not be able to push forward. And I'm not arguing that Canelo is more effective backing up. It sounds Certainly. like you're kind of wagering, though, that if he doesn't get his own way, he's going to get deflated or disheartened or that it'll um, uh, take the wind out of his sails a bit. Is that kind of where you're coming from? Yeah, like it'll put him in like, hmm, thinking mode. What? What? This isn't working. Let me try something different. And when he starts See, to try different that, things. Though. Exactly. I don't think we've seen Golovkin have to really go too far into... The, the 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 tool shed or not the tool shed but his tool belt of what he can do um he did a little bit with jacobs no doubt about that he did do some different things with jacobs but ultimately he wasn't pushed that far he still won the fight and i think just the the fact of of trying to make Golovkin do things he's not used to doing it goes a long way in taking him out of his comfort zone and once he's out of his comfort zone doing things that he doesn't typically do that's when we're going to see the real intrigue of this fight or one of them could get knocked on the first round. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think that's likely. Um, so so how, how do you have this playing out? Like, I, I'm pretty confident. Uh, you know I don't of, answer that question. Well, I, I will then, because I'm sure people want to know or I'll have some kind of finger in the air. So I think that we're going to see Canelo get a lot of his own way and, you know, fairly comfortably win quite a lot of rounds. I also think that it's going to have a few rounds, maybe three, where Golovkin has very, very pronounced success and they're just clear Golovkin rounds where he, he gets some work done. I think there's going to be a few swings that leads to a you know close but comfortable decision for Canelo on the cards that I think is going to annoy a lot of people. That You know there's a kind of uh, demographic of fans who think that if someone wins a round really clearly, it's worth more. Yeah, yep. And I think that we'll see Canelo win more rounds, tighter rounds, but more of them. And I think we'll see Golovkin win a handful of very decisive rounds that will lead people to be disappointed with the result. So you're thinking that this is going to be like Ward Kovalev won? Yeah, basically. Will there be a knockdown? Um, yeah, I think there will. Okay, okay, okay. All right, well, I, I like that. And... Um, you know, I, I I just don't really like spelling out what I think is going to happen because I and I've said it before on the podcast many times and every time it seems to go this way. The least likely outcome is usually the one that happens, 
Remember <laughs> Hopkins Kovalev? We were like, there's no way Kovalev could win a decision. He's not going to outbox Hopkins. If he's going to beat him, he's going to stop him. And what happened? Mm-hmm. Kovalev looks like That's Floyd a Mayweather. Example, though. I, I think more often than not, things go to the, to the kind of loose script. Uh, well, not in these situations. Sometimes, but sometimes not. How many people were like, there's no way Floyd Mayweather is going to stop Conor McGregor? We all know he's going to win, but he's going to do what he normally does. I, I think conventional wisdom that was that he'll stop him late or win a wide decision. Right, but... Um, it's just it's usually the one that's not frequently talked about. Uh, nobody thought Joe Smith Jr. was in a knock or, I mean, pushed Bernard Hopkins out of the ring. It just happens so much when you get these big fights. What's going to happen? I mean, who thought Andre Ward was going to stop Kovalev? Yeah, I, I, you're pointing to some outlier surprises and then making a case that they're the norm. And I would just say that they stick out because of how surprising they were. But when stuff goes to the script... Like, people don't make a big deal about it. Okay, well, just, you know, you have to entertain me here, but what is the least likely outcome of this fight? Um, well, either a draw on gambling basis or um, <laughs> a Canelo stoppage, which is what you want me to say. No, I I, I was legitimately, like, I, I wasn't thinking because I, I hadn't predicted it. I hadn't thought, thought of it myself. I, I think Canelo winning a stoppage is the... Uh, least conventionally probable thing. Not what's technically probable, not what I think could or couldn't happen. But if you surveyed, you know, 100 experts, I think that would be the least likely thing that you get told. Um, someone asked me over the weekend who they should bet on. And I just said, just bet draw. I, I, I don't, I, I can't, this is a tough one to predict. Um, if you ask me what's going to happen, I lean towards Canelo. I, I think there are a lot of factors to go against Golovkin. I mean, and if you're someone who supports Golovkin, there's a ton you can point to for Canelo. It, it just seems, though, that this is the way these fights go. Um, and uh, I, I think it, you're right. It's going to be one of those 114-113 sort of fights. Or, well, in this case, it'll be 115-113 without a, a knockdown uh, for Canelo. And only because what do I not want to deal with on Monday and Sunday? <laughs> and the week after, people yelling robbery and corruption and talking about how Don Trella and Adelaide Bird shouldn't been shouldn't have been judges. And it's like, listen, in a close fight, seven to five, that's an acceptable card for anybody. You cannot argue with it. Okay, eight to four, can't even argue with that because that's one one additional round. It happens. So uh, that's 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 what I think is going to happen. Would I be shocked if Golovkin wins? No, not at all. I think. Not only could he win, um, I it, you could see it playing out pretty easily. You can see Golovkin just being a superior boxer. But the thing that Canelo has going for him is he's got speed, he's got youth, he's got um, far better head movement. I mean, we didn't even touch on the head movement. Um, do, do a better you, caliber of opposition. Okay, just because he fought Floyd doesn't mean he's a better... No, go on. But just do, 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 do me a favor and explain why. Well, yeah, I, I think while Golovkin's had tough fights... Canelo has got head and shoulders better resume, um, not just in his loss against Floyd, but he's, he's been in with a kind of who's who of um, fame and success within the division. Whereas Golovkin, his toughest fights are against people that aren't established, but we know they're good. That's fair. Danny Jacobs um, and Danny Jacobs, basically. <laughs> I mean, who else? So, Honestly. Well, on Golovkin's resume. Yeah. 
But I mean, you'd be dismissing Kel Brook at that point as someone who's talented. But you know, and I think you can do that responsibly. But I'd I'd list him as someone there that's an established name that he's been in against. I'm dismissing Kel Brook because that was a welterweight fighting as a middle middleweight. Golovkin laughed at him. Um, like, you know, that's like saying, you know, Floyd Mayweather's fought some of the best fighters in the world, like Conor McGregor. And it's like, what? He's like, yeah, he's, well, he's the best fighter. Yeah, but like, he's a, a best fighter. I wouldn't in a make that sport. argument. I'd be pointing at different names with a bit more prestige to them. But I, th- I think that Canelo has the better resume and has um, the potentially better boxing IQ based on his experiences. It's whether he has the discipline to stick to that. All right. Um, so you're predicting uh canelo decision and are yeah, you I expecting so. a lot of people to be in disagreement and complaining a lot online on sunday it totally depends on if i'm right and that golovkin scores a knockdown and has some rounds where he looks excellent but not many of them but just the ones that he does are super wide uh, one-sided then yeah absolutely <sighs> this is a tough fight and this is this is why though this is the the best fight that is currently in boxing. I I, I preferred Ward Kovalev over this one. Um, you just had two guys that were closer in age and skill and everything. Um, and I think a lot of people, especially the Golovkin fans, I think the Golovkin fans specifically, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like the Golovkin fans are far more critical of Canelo than Canelo's fans are of Golovkin. I think there's a lot, there's more of a phenomenon of just dismissing him on the whole versus um, Canelo fans. I think they all recognize mostly recognize that Golovkin is legitimately good. What do you think? Um, I think that it, if you want to take the worst people from both fan bases, the worst Golovkin fans are the people that think that he's an immutable God and he's kind of not human and that he'll walk through anyone. And the thing that they've got going for them is that they can point to Canelo dropping his belt and, um, not taking the best opponents at the best times. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a weak criticism now because the fight's here, but they can still <laughs> make that case. Um, and I think that the people that are in Canelo's corner are just uh, probably sick of how insufferable they perceive the most ardent Golovkin fans to be and just think that, you know, he can do no wrong in their eyes, which annoys them a bit. So I, I, I don't know. I, th- I think there's frustrations on both sides. Um, but as far as fan bases go, I don't find either of them particularly annoying or egregious. Like, I think they're both all right. That's because you're not a mod. Well, maybe. Maybe I get spared the worst of it. Yeah, I was um, literally going to say, you don't see the worst of it. Just, you know, without naming names, there have been fighters in the past whose fan bases have been more annoying. Would uh, the fighter be from the Philippines? He may or may not be. I, I just couldn't say. Would he have um, had a fight with the best pound-for-pound boxer of our generation? It's it's arguable, and uh, who knows? <laughs> okay, so let's. Uh, this is something we've traditionally done on this podcast. Um, so, assuming that Golovkin loses, I know. Just bear with Big us. Big assumption. Okay? That's that's you. You know, you can't just do bear that. Bear with us if you're listening. But assuming Golovkin loses, where, like, who do his fans support now? Him still, I think. Really? Okay, so here's the thing. Let's say Golovkin loses. Like, mm-hmm. what's next for his career? Um, probably rematch that they'll be gunning for, but oh, maybe... like I said earlier in the podcast, but Simon kind of just kind of dismissed it, uh, but, it, you know, book I, your I, I dis- room I dis- for September I dismissed your certainty or May 5th. I think it literally is May 5th next year, too. 
book your room rematch i i just i just can't be that confident but I, I, you know, there's a good chance Golovkin would be gunning for that if he wins. Uh, sorry, if he loses and loses narrowly as well, especially if they've got, um, you know, if it's a blowout, then it's back to the drawing room. And who knows? Maybe he'll try and campaign lighter. Golovkin would vacate, or sorry, were you saying that Golovkin would campaign lighter? It, potentially, like I don't think that you could rule that out. Oh my God! Do you think Golovkin, at just taking away six pounds, can compete against the? The, the murderer's row at 154 at the moment. It seems like all those fighters would be trouble for him given how much they move and um, that they're all counter punchers. I mean, uh, pound for pound, Golovkin's better, no doubt about that. But these guys all at 154 seem to have power and skill, like slick skills. Mm. I, I just, I mean, maybe they'll they'll shoot for Billy Joe Saunders if he loses, but within middleweight, if he loses Assuming to Canelo, Billy Joe Saunders wins, he'll kind of be uh revisiting old ground do you think kel brook would want to rematch no <laughs> okay so let's let's assume that canelo loses what do you think he does um i don't think that that troubles him too much if he loses he'll just look for another big money fight against another big name that he can sell uh, at whatever division he feels that works best like canelo's career has been one of getting high money, like high value fights and um, seemingly with little issue. So I, I don't think that it offsets him as, as badly as it does Golovkin. Um, okay, so, so this something just popped up in the mod queue. Okay. Gareth Davies of The Telegraph has reported that Golovkin's coach Abel Sanchez said during one of Golovkin's training camp runs in Big Bear, California, that a brown bear came crashing out of the woods one day in front of Sanchez's vehicle. But according to Davies's report, Golovkin showed no fear. Well then. So now... 121.08. Now, does that change your mind on who's winning this fight? In massive ways. Um, if we'd have known that at the start, it would have made every... No, of course not. It's nonsense. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just stupid tat. I know... <laughs> Who writes that or who reads it? It's a community uh, I seem to be divorced from. Gareth Davies wrote it, and then Neil Doran reposted it on Boxing News and Views. Like, really, people? That's what we're writing on Fight Week? We're talking about Glovkin? Like, this is a thing that I just want, want to say. Abel Sanchez, like, at this point, like, just stop. They, they keep putting a microphone, and he's not as good at Freddie Roach, at, at being the guy who hypes up fights because their fighter can't do it for themselves. Like, Freddie Roach is legitimately abrasive towards people. You've seen him in his in, in 24-7 or on the On Freddie Roach series where, you know, he's he, he's actually, he's not, he's no warm, bubbly guy. But yeah, he's part-time hype man, part-time trainer. But, he, you know, he's, 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 he's a lot closer to, to, to Angel Garcia than he is to Abel Sanchez. Abel Sanchez himself is a nice guy. And all of his stuff just comes off as it's like, dude, don't, just, don't. Stop. It doesn't fit you. Mm. Stop trying to, you know, say you're going to knock out Canelo in one round or something. Like, it is bizarre. It's like when they try and get Bernard Bonte to, to trash talk people, and it just, it just doesn't work. Who? Uh, the Klitschko manager. Oh. You don't need to do that with Klitschko. His, his resume speaks for itself. Mm. It's where you've got someone that's kind of like a mild-mannered, um, reasonably nice person from all accounts, and then they... You, the media want to see them uh, trash talk or cause controversy, so they're like putting a microphone in their face and poking them with like you know thinly veiled questions to try and get a response, and it, it just comes off wrong. 
yeah I, I i this fight doesn't need any of that stuff it's this is like legitimately a great fight you don't need to do any of that stuff they didn't do it for mayweather pacquiao and it still sold 4.4 million pay-per-views how many buys do you think this is going to do i have always taken the firm stance that it's rubbish and that we should be interested in the quality of the matchup and not its commercial success, at least first and foremost. What are you talking about? I asked you to predict how many pay-per-view buys this is going to do. Yeah, I know. I'm saying that I don't care. Why don't you care? You're an American now. This is what we talk about, Simon. <laughs> I've never been big on uh, bean counting on what fights are going to do bigger numbers and who's the bigger draw. I think that the, the more interesting conversation is always the nature of the, the contest and how it's going to play out rather than the nature of its financial success. Yeah, but that's not how we do things in America, okay? We measure people by the amount of money that they can make. We measure people by the amount of buys that they do in boxing. And it means just as much to be the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the sport as it does to me the number one highest-selling um, and plus, how are we going to make USC fans feel bad? I just don't see any value in that line of inquiry. Obviously, there are people that enjoy it, and fair enough, but it's not for me. As as somebody that's like embedded in business stuff, like I love this stuff. This this is my hobby. I like the contractual nuances and the business side of things, but I think this is this isn't really business that we're talking about at this stage. What we're talking about is. Um, marketing and promotion and uh public narratives things things that are going to in like effectively you have these core pockets of boxing fans and they're fans of either the domestic scene fans of the world scene fans of a certain country fans of a certain weight class and then you have the kind of more fringe customers that just want a good night and it they might not even be boxing specific it might be that they are willing to pay for any event that manages to capture their imagination. And when we're talking about the big pay-per-view events like this one, all that we're really thinking about is how well this does to capture a casual fan that doesn't necessarily follow boxing's interest in buying this. And in my opinion, it doesn't translate very well. There was a small um, push when Floyd was active years back to try and agitate for Golovkin being the one that he's ducking and avoiding and that he should fight Golovkin you know, rather than Pacquiao or after Pacquiao and, and, and things like that. And it, whilst um, it had some traction, it never really captured people to us to the point that it was a big talking point we saw lots. It was one of those, oh yeah, I remember people talking about that a bit. And I think with that in mind, uh, it means that the casual audience aren't super aware of who either of these guys are. And so as a result, I don't think that it's going to be a smash hit with casual fans. And that's fine, because it's going to be a great fight, regardless of who else is watching it with us. I think that that's one side of it. But the other side of it, and it it has its its roots in the whole discussion of um and part of it actually i can see another angle here but part of it is in the roots of like boxing is dying and i know your long take on that but essentially i think people use that to measure the health of the sport and they know that at a certain point there's a level or there's a number that basically means oh yeah only boxing cares about this and then there's a number that says okay people outside of boxing care about this and i think that's what people want to measure when they look at the pay-per-view buys um I don't think some people may want to use it to put people down or at least put the fighters down or, or make arguments for other stuff. But I think that's, that's a, a part that nobody really talks about, but that's mostly what I think it is. 
yeah, there's, there's certainly an interest in doing that. I just don't think it's a particularly effective barometer um, for how good a fight's going to be. Oh, absolutely. Canelo Chavez Jr. did over a million pay-per-view buys. So mm-hmm. that's that. Well, that is all for this week's episode. This was a bit longer than we usually do. Um, and uh, we hope that you subscribe on iTunes or leave us a review. Good reviews, uh, they help us. And uh, also leave comments in the, the thread that we make. If you have any replies, if you have an opinion, if you want to argue with Simon about something, he's more than glad to um, engage you in that. And if you have a prediction that you'd like to tell us or basically think we missed something, let us know. Um, Simon, thanks for coming on this week. Uh, we hope to have you back next week. Um, and we'll see. And basically, if you're right, you know, I'll give you all the credit in the world. And if you're wrong, you've got some explaining yeah, to do. It's a good... Um autopsy that we're going to get to do next week uh, kind of post-mortem on what's happened and i look forward to that as well yeah we're going to do a deep dive into um ryan martin versus francisco rojo Mm -hmm. okay thanks for listening we'll be back next week you know if crawford loses which he won't by the way anytime soon but if he were to lose is that going to take away from his greatness not if he's I don't fighting think so. everyone if one of these guys if one of these guys lose is it going to take away from their greatness no i think triple g is going to beat canelo i'm saying that right now i think he's going to beat him he's going to beat him late because he's going to use that jab to his advantage but still in all i want to see the fight because canelo can fight and he's got you know he's got courage i love canelo